I was debated Monday or Tuesday email and Doug to having the title. Um, I wanted the title to be Building Together Side by Side um, because it's the focus that I'd, I'd like us to think about using Nehemiah as a picture. When uh, we were getting together or preparing for the leadership retreat, I was gathering the prophetic words, just listening to them and transcribing them. And, and that's a process if you, you got to listen to stuff over and over again, but to get it to get it down right. But at some time in the middle of that, I had this dream that was, I had no idea where it came from. And it was the whole night long, I kept dreaming about the book of Nehemiah. I wasn't dreaming as it was happening. I wasn't, I was like, I was dreaming that somebody was reading it to me over and over and over again all night long. And I, I woke up and I was like, is this for me? Is that, I thought, well, leadership retreat is coming up. If I feel like it's supposed to be shared there, then I, then I will. I didn't, but I just kind of tucked it away and until, I don't know, about a month and a half ago, a month or so ago, I don't know when it was. Um, but as I was reading through it, I saw so many pictures that I, that I think can help us, strengthen us in, in building together. But first, I want to give a little bit of a background, a historical background to Nehemiah coming. He wasn't the first one to show up. In 597 B.C., Jeremiah issued a, proc- a prophecy to the nation of Ju- to Judah, to the Israelites, that they were going to be going into exile, that the temple was going to be destroyed, the capital city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. But in, included in that was a time frame of 70 years. Then about 60 years after that, they went into exile about 586. Then around 539, 540 or so, Daniel reads it, and he starts praying into it, praying for its fulfillment, confessing the sins of the people and asking God to bring this to pass. And then about a year later, Cyrus the Great is reading Isaiah's prophecy, and he reads in Isaiah 44 about him, himself. This was written 200 years before he was born. And, that, and Isaiah's prophecy called Cyrus the Good Shepherd, and that he will do what God wants he will rebuild and restore. And Isaiah, or Cyrus is so impressed by this prophecy written 200 years before he was born that he decides to go along with what God said he's going to do. And he issues a proclamation and it enlists Zerubbabel to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. I, I find that interesting. Jeremiah prophesied it. But Daniel prayed into it. And Cyrus had to act. There is a part that we play in prophecies, either praying into it or acting upon it or both. That is important for us to remember. As I was transcribing those audio files, there's one one prophecy in particular that just that was painful to listen to, it was painful to read, it was painful to pray over, because the majority of things in that didn't happen. And at least one thing struck me that it seems like the exact opposite happened. And it was, it was hard to read. And I'm like, what, what's going on? This is, it'd be easy for us to think, oh, false prophet. Just kind of dismiss it. But I, but I had to question, how much did I pray into that? How much did I take that prophecy and pray for it? That, that God would bring it to pass. That he would, not only that he would bring it to pass, that he would, that he would protect that word that we would steward it, not trying necessarily to cause guilt or anything like that, but to encourage us to participate in what God's word is for us. So we're going to pick up there in Nehemiah. 
Um, Nehemiah had asked about what was going on back at Jerusalem, and he was quite grieved by the news that, that the walls were broken down, nothing was happening, the, they were, the Israelites were under attack. Josephus writes about just young men being killed, their bodies laying in the streets, and he, he writes further than Nehemiah does about what happened, and it was just a desperate time. And it grieved him because the people, his people were under such stress because what had been written earlier still hadn't really fully been realized. Now, Nehemiah comes on the scene in the mid-400s, so this has been almost 100 years from the time that Zerubbabel goes Till, till Nehemiah's time. But I noticed that, that Nehemiah didn't just assume, well, it must not have been God's will. Because if it was God's will, it would have happened. He grieved over it. He began praying for it, and then he acted upon it as well. And he had favor with Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes gave him permission to go. And the first thing we read, we're going to pick up in... Finding the first thing we read, he gets there and he reads about this Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite. These guys are irritated that anyone even be concerned about Israelites. It irritates them. So right away, there's opposition. Further down, we read that Nehemiah inspects the city walls and then tells them what's going to happen. Down in verse 19, when Sambal the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official in Geshem the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Notice that the opposition was immediate, but it wasn't new. This opposition, Ezra writes about, writes about it in Ezra 4. It's been taking place for about 100 years through five rulers, Cyrus, his son Cambyses, Darius, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. It's been constant. There's been constant opposition to the word of the Lord being fulfilled. The word of the Lord through Jeremiah and then through, through Cyrus. And here we have basically what Sanbal is questioning Nehemiah's obedience to God, to the king. But do we find that? Are you sure that's what you're supposed to be doing? I don't, I don't really think that's what God wants you to do. I think, you're, I think you're really not really following God on that. The opposition kind of comes in questioning our obedience to God himself. But what does Nehemiah say? He says, we're going we're gonna to build anyway. It doesn't matter. We're going to build anyway. You know, opposition is going to come. Whenever you try to step into your own personal prophetic words, and we as a congregation attempt to build the corporate prophetic words, we're gonna have, there's going to be opposition. You've got to build anyway. It was, it was Nehemiah 3 that I couldn't leave for a couple, uh, about a week or two, a couple weeks after reading it, after that dream. And I'm not a cinematographer, and I'm not going to read this whole thing. There's a lot of detail in here. But I want us to get a picture. I'm not a cinematographer, and I'm not even really a big rabid fan. Those trivia games, it's the entertainment questions that I always lose on. And I miss 90% of any allusions to movies. Uh, it, it was, interestingly, it was numerous references to the movie The Matrix that finally convinced me to watch it. I don't know how many messages and sermons and preachers I heard uh, making some allusion to The Matrix. I thought, well, this must be a good movie. I'm going to read it. But I don't, I don't watch movies. But there is something I think we all recognize, that the way the camera moves, the way the music plays does something. It creates 
you know what the, the uh, producer is wanting to, to do, the effect he wants to have. By the way, the, the camera and the music does. Jonathan, he knows movies. Um, he will, when the music is such and the, and, the, and the screen starts to darken, he hides behind our table because he can recognize long before anything scary is happening that there's something that's scary that's going to happen because of the camera. So when I was reading this, Nehemiah had said we're going to work, and then it starts out right away. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work to rebuild the gate. And then the men of Jericho built the adjoining section. The fish gate was built. And what I could see in my mind's eye and in my heart was this camera moving to, to Eliashib as he begins to move and then start to pan out. As each person rose from the rubble, I'm picturing that, rose from the rubble and said, I'm going to do this part. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do this section. And so the camera in my mind's eye was panning out as each Israel, as each person decided their place in the building project and the music is building. And then the chapters, you go through it, goes all the way around, each person doing a part, all the way apart. And so it comes around till the whole wall, somebody's working on every aspect of the wall. There's some details in this chapter that I want to hit on. The first one is Eliashib. It starts with Eliashib, the high priest. It's like immediately he says, I'm in. I'm all in. Even though he had close associations with Tobiah, who was against it, and he was related through marriage to Sanballat. His grandson was married to Sanballat's daughter, and Nehemiah 13 says he had close associations with Tobiah. So even though he had family and friends and close associates that were against it, he's the first one that says, I'm in. I'm, I'm all in here. And he got up and he started building. We also notice that he built the sheep gate. There are different places in this that we realize that people built the area of the wall that had significance to them, that meant something to them. Eliashib was the high priest. He built the sheep gate. This is where the sheep came in as they went to the temple sacrifices. The, high, the priest would bring the, the sheep through this gate. Eliashib says, that's my gate. He's the high priest. There are various verses that talk about verse 10. I'll just read uh, one. There's about four verses. If we go down to verse 10, Jedediah made repairs opposite to his house. So there were some that say, hey, my house is here. I'll fix this section of the wall. That it was important to them that that section of the wall, obvious for obvious reasons, why that section of the wall they built where, where it was. And later on in 4, it says that they each returned to his own work. So there's a significance of each person said, this is the part, that, this is the part I want to work on. That, that part's important to me. That means something. I'm going to work on that section. And so as I was watching this in my mind's eye, the very first time when I read Nehemiah 3 and saw that camera, I saw that same picture here. And I saw us, each one of us, I'm in our section of the wall. This is important to me. That means a lot to me. And we get up and we go to it. And the camera pans out until, until we see all of Gateway being built by everybody here. As we each take our own part, as we each do what's important to us, the part that God has placed on us. So what, what has God placed on you? What are the needs at Gateway that you think, man, it's, oh, somebody needs to do that. That is so obvious. What is that? Do you, do you feel a needs minister? Do you want to minister to the homeless and the needy? 
and you feel like that's what the church should be about, then get involved with Co Purple or the clothes closet. You're going to make connections with the needy through clothes closet real quick. Get involved. Are you longing for us to step into the supernatural? Like, man, we, we got to go after science and wonder. We got, I want it. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. So let's go after it. When you live a life of signs and wonders, I guarantee people are going to follow. What aspect of church life is important to you? What, what part of gateway do you want to see built? Either built again or built back. And start moving to that section and start doing it. Understand the power that you have because you believe in that. Because you have passion for that. Because you believe in it. We have a tendency to think that other people have more power or influence over other people. There is nothing as powerful than zealous belief to convince people to get on board. So when you believe and when you develop testimony, when you start to do things and you start to walk in that and you bring back testimony and your enthusiasm in sharing those testimonies, somebody else is going to think, well, I think I want to get involved in that. It's going to ignite that desire in other people. We can and we do. Maturity dictates that there are times I work on somebody else's section of the wall. Danny Silk relates it like this, though. It's, it's, we need to, but it's more wearying. And he, this, is, this is the analogy he gives. I could, how long could you hold your fingers like this? You could, and, and really, for a long time, I could sit here and hold my fingers like this. But now suppose I took a rubber band and stretched it. My fingers are going to get weary much faster. So when I'm working on my section of the wall, it's like holding my fingers open. I, it's no big deal. I can, I can probably preach the rest of the sermon holding my fingers open like this. But if I'm stretching with a rubber band, they're going to get weary, and I'm going to start thinking about how achy my fingers are getting. So we need to, but we also need to recognize that if it's... we um. Nikki and I have varying degrees of difference when the code purple season ends. <laughs> I'm glad it's over, and I'm like, and I can start to feel that my fingers have been stretched <laughs> by about the end of February. Nikki's weary, but her weariness is not the same as my weariness, because this is what this is what lights her fire, ministering to those people, and she she's ready for a break, but she's also sad that it's over. And, and that's what happens. I can help her. Glad to do that. But when the season's over, my, my fingers are sore. And my fingers need a break. I need to get the rubber band off for a while. Because I find that what I'm doing is I'm, I have to. And I'm not. When, you're, when I go to work on somebody else, when I work on somebody else's section of the wall, my wall is being neglected to some degree or another. And that's Okay. I don't mind. We need to do that. We need to pull for each other. And Nehemiah says, when the trumpet sounds, go to that place in the wall. And that's important. That is important. But then each return to his own work. I had a map. If you, if you would ever, the um, Nehemiah, Jerusalem and Nehemiah's time was shaped kind of like a fish. Some people say a foot, but anyway, and it was about a mile and a half around. The wall was a mile and a half around. And so you had a little bit of people, and somebody had taken that and colored each of it. Each section was colored a different color to show the diversity. Well, that's another thing you see. Let me back up because I missed something. You can see that in the, in the thing. You have, um, 
not everyone's from Jerusalem. You have people from Jericho. You have people from Mizpah. You have people from Zenoa, Beth Hakaram, Tekoa, people from various cities that came to Jerusalem. So we're going to, that, that's me tell some cross-pollination. People from other places bring stuff that they need. It tells me, speaks of diversity. You have high priests. You have fathers. You even had women, daughters. One guy didn't have, his daughters went to work with him. There's so much diversity there. And what, if we're going to build something, we're going to recognize it as a united effort despite diversity, despite diverse interests, passions, gifts, talents, and abilities. And I am doing you a disservice to say what's important to me needs to be important to you. And it's not important if you don't come. And I've thought that. I thought, well, if, well I really have a, a desire to rebuild Sunday school in some form. And it'd be tempting for me to say, well, it's just, if it's important to people, they'll come. Then it puts it on them, it puts it on other people to show how important it is, rather than me just say, hey, build anyway. So we need, we need this united effort, but this united effort is going to involve several things. And the first and foremost, it's going to involve honor. And honor means you can disagree with me and I still like you. Honor means you bring an entirely different piece of the puzzle. You're building a section of the wall that's completely opposite of my section, but I honor you in doing it. You go, you build, great, have at it. Honor means that sometimes I leave my wall and go help you build. But honor values that. It, it requires an interdependence, not a codependence. A codependent relationship is I need you to be a certain way so I can be happy. I, I need you to function in a certain role so, I can, so I can keep functioning in my role, the way I like to function. But interdependence is you get to be you, I get to me, and we get to work together side by side. I get to bring what I have, and you get to bring what you have, and we get to build together. It's a, and it's, it also requires a win-win. If one person suffers, then we all suffer. So if one person's suffering, then we're, this is not a win-win. This is not interdependence. There's some codependency or something else going on, maybe some independence going on. But it's a win-win or deals off. That's what independence tells us. It also involves synergy. Interestingly, interdependence and synergy are uh, one of the two seven habits, habits of highly successful people. And both of these recognize that we're different and we're stronger because we're different. Synergy values differences and diversity because it recognizes you have something that I, I could do, but it just, I just wouldn't be all there. I probably wouldn't do as good a job. I could do what you want me to do, but you're probably going to wish I hadn't done it. Not because I don't want to, but because I don't bring the passion. Therefore, I don't bring the excellence either. I don't bring everything to it. I don't notice things. So synergy also recognizes that we're stronger together because of our differences. Because you care about this and I care about this, you think this is important and I think this is important. We're stronger because of it. Because we got those areas covered well and covered in a way that's not going to be burdensome and not going to be wearying. It's insecurity and immaturity that demands that you have to look like me. It's insecurity and immaturity that means that what's important to me has to be important to you or you don't really care about me. 
It's insecurity and immaturity that makes us want to make everybody into our image rather than in God's image. And collectively, our differences and diversity reflect him. There's an interesting thing in here. If you read through that list, you will find the name of Nehemiah, but it's a different Nehemiah. You don't see Nehemiah assigned any section of the wall. You do see later on where Nehemiah worked on the wall. He is involved in the work, working on the wall so much that he was so busy, there were times he didn't even take his clothes off, change them. He, he, he says he didn't take his clothes off, so it tells you how busy he was. It wasn't that he didn't work and didn't care. He was involved, but he didn't choose one section that this is my section, and nobody made him say, hey, you're not working on the sheep gate. You're supposed to be over here. No, that was Eliashib's job. He said, he's got that. And Nehemiah knew it. That's taken care of. He's got that. We don't, well, we recognize in a church building, Tim has a section of the wall. He's got a part of, the, part of this that he's, that's, he's responsible for. But we don't need him to be involved in every area. We don't need an elder on every single board. We don't need an elder involved in everything like that. It's the walls under, under, under leadership. The building is under the direction and the guidance. And, and hopefully, what it's, hopefully, ideally, the leadership empowers you. You bring something, hey, I want to do this. Go for it. I would really like to see more of this. Then let's have at it. Let's do it. I, uh, I, I, I don't understand why it is that a quarterback can sell insurance. Now, I love Peyton Manning's nationwide commercials. I think they're hilarious. But just because he's a pro quarterback and probably a Hall of Famer at some point in time, that doesn't mean I'm going to be buying nationwide insurance. It doesn't influence in me at all. But if I have a friend who's telling me a story of how they've dealt with nationwide, what the costs are and what they've, how they've dealt with them, their interaction with them on the phone, how quick they were, I'm in. Because I know this person, this person believes in it, and they're not just some, somebody that just says it just because somebody thinks, oh, he's a good quarterback. He'll be able to convince a whole lot of people. He's got so much influence and power, and everybody's, no. No, it's not necessarily always the case. I'm not saying leaders don't do anything. I'm not, leaders serve. The, the number one criteria of leadership is to serve. But what, I, and, but what I want us to recognize is each of you has power. Each of you have authority. Each of you have influence. Each of you have things that God has placed in you that we want you to bring to Gateway. And we want to do what we can do to give you what you need, the encouragement, the support, the space to bring what you want to bring here to Gateway. If... I would love to see Kate um, doing some art during worship. I don't know. I love, I love her artwork. But if you said, oh, well, you've got to be, since I want it, well, you got to do it. Are you kidding me? I can hardly draw a stick figure. I'm good if I can get that done. That's partly why I didn't draw Nehemiah's wall. It would have been far too much, too complicated for me. And she's going to be far more passionate about it. And people are going catch to her, catch her passion. And they're going to be like, I like that. I want to do that too. So they're building the wall. Everybody's working on their section, and we get to chapter 4. And this is, this is the part that I'm, I wish this didn't exist. I wish this part of building didn't exist, but it does. We open up chapter 4, and it says, Sambal heard that they were re- rebuilding the wall. He became angry and greatly incensed. Okay, he was irritated, 
but he's ticked off now. And what's he saying? What in the world are they doing? What makes them think what they're building is even going to last? Just wait. Just wait. He's telling us, just wait. In a, in a year, it'll, it'll, it'll all fall. I don't even know if it'll last a year. It's just going gonna, gonna to all crumble. And he starts to spread this doubt amongst the people around him that their efforts are useless, they're not going to last, they're not going to stand the test of time because he's really ticked off. Now, who is this Sanballat? Sanballat, he has a, um, a Greekish, a Persian pagan name. I can't remember which nationality, but his sons have Hebrew-type names. Their sons all have a, his sons have an element of Yah in them from Yahweh. Um, but he was the governor of Samaria. And it says he's the Horonite. They're not really sure what that necessarily signifies, but they believe he came from the town of Horon, which was in Ephraim. And it's likely he had jurisdiction over this area. So this is somebody who has connections with this. This isn't some stranger that just came. He has connections. And like I said, his, he's part of Elisha's family. He may have been a worshiper of God because his, his daughter is married to a high priest grandson because his sons have... A, the part of Yahweh's name, a depiction of, I can't remember the word, Theo something. But he's irritated. He was irritated, now he's angry, and he's contemptuous, and he's mocking them. And in trying to convince people that whatever they're doing, it's going to fall apart. So just, just bide your time. It's not going to last. But what did they do? They continued to build. They continued to build till the walls were halfway up, and why did they build? Look at verse 6. They rebuilt, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Another version says the people were enthusiastic about their work. And they kept on. They didn't allow his contempt, his irritation, his anger, and his mockery to derail them from what God had given them to do. Even though they probably, those who stayed, you know, when the, when the exiles came back, they didn't come back to empty land. Chances are the people that were living there, some of them were placed there by Assyria, likely, and some of them were Jews that just didn't end up going into the exile. They probably knew Sanballat a whole lot better than they knew this Nehemiah. This Nehemiah is the new kid on the block. He's just come. What makes anybody think? Why should we listen to him? We've, they've been building for 100 years now, and it ain't happened. What's he going to do? Let's, he's... The, the new guy, we don't really, I don't know if I can really trust him. They got it done. You're right. They got it done. And then in verse 7 and 8, Sanballat throws down the gauntlet. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls that were going ahead, that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. Sanballat throws down the gauntlet and he says, not on my watch. We're going to fight this thing. Who's with me? I'm going to fight it. Whatever I can. And now we see evidence that the Jews are starting to get tired. They're starting to echo some of that. They're saying, everybody's getting tired. And there's so much rubble. There's so much left to do. I don't, are we going to be able to finish it? We're getting... Others say, and you know what? Before we know it, the enemies, they're right here. They're going to, they say they're going to attack us without us even knowing it. And then Jews who weren't ready to come and help were kind of the eyes and the ears. And they were saying, hey, they are, wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. And so 
Now, Sanballat, the opposition is getting to the Jews. And they're getting tired and they're getting weary. And so what does Nehemiah do? He says, okay, everybody take a tool and a weapon. Work and warfare go hand in hand. Where there's work, there's warfare. Sometimes they're both simultaneously and sometimes, but yeah, it's both simultaneously. In Nehemiah's story, it's one or the other. But uh, when you work that out into life, really, it's, it's both. The trial on the sword. The only time your warfare is going to end is when your work is done. And that's generally probably going to be when he comes back or you're lying in a coffin. And I, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time on opposition. But I think it's something we, we need to recognize. And we need to recognize we're getting discouraged. Why are we getting discouraged? What's causing us to think, we've been at this for how many years and where are we? We're, no, we're going around the same tree three times and I'm so tired of it. Maybe we're not going anywhere. I was, I was reading a book on leadership and one of the things that it's, it's important for people to recognize that they're actually going somewhere. And so it's, it's understandable. We're going around this tree three times. We're not really going anywhere. Why are we feeling that way? Is it because the opposition has finally gotten to us? Are we, do, the question really is, do we all believe that God is building something here? And that he's building something of endurance and that's important for the kingdom. And if there's some questions going off in your mind, then can you take that to Jesus and find where it came from? Learn where it's coming from. And sometimes it's a lie inside of me. Sometimes it's, a, it's not that we're not building. I think that I'm really supposed to be building over here. And that's okay. We're all part of the kingdom. But if the opposition has gotten to you and you're starting to believe their taunts, then we need to work through that. And get alone with Jesus and start to process that. Because the reason Jeremiah was willing to pray into that was because he believed it. We think perseverance is what achieves stuff. Before perseverance comes a conviction that it's true. I was reading to jo Jonathan about Howard Carter. The reason Howard Carter was convinced that he was going to find a tomb in the Valley of the Tombs. And he worked year after year. Everybody else quit the job, and the guy who was funding him finally said, you have one more season, and I'm done funding this. It wasn't that Howard Carter likes to dig in the sand. He was convinced there's this unknown, insignificant king, and his tomb is buried here somewhere. And he ended up finding the very first undisturbed tomb of any Egyptian pharaoh, King Tut. We know him as King Tut. I still hear the song in my mind, King Tutankhamun. But it was belief. It was conviction. So we take these prophetic words, we believe them first. And then we're all in. And then we pray into them. And we act upon them where he highlights for us to act. Okay. There was more opposition. Rumors spread. Oh, the reason they're building those walls is because they, they want to isolate themselves and they, don't wanna, they just want to have their own little thing going on and they're not really going to worry about, they're not going to pay their tribute, or you know what, Nehemiah, he really wants to make himself king. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to build himself his own little kingdom that he can rule. Y'all ought to know that. These rumors spread. Rumors spread faster than anything else. They also pretended to be friends with him to try to knock him off his game because they knew if they derailed Nehemiah, they'd derail everybody else. Tells you how important Nehemiah was, even though he wasn't assigned to any section of the wall. We're building something here. I hope we are. I trust we are. I believe we are. But what are we building? Think about that answer in your mind. What are we building? 
and then ask, is it big enough to include all of us? Is it big enough that each person here can participate in that building? Because if it's too small, that these people over here really can't participate, then it's not really, it's not, number one, it's not big enough, and it's not family, and it's not kingdom. It's got to be big enough. It's, it's easy, it's tempting, and it's natural for us to confuse our section of the wall with the wall. It, uh, Harold Eberly in his book, The Complete, Complete Wineskin, I'd highly encourage you to read it. It's about church structure and, and all. It's a great book. It's not, it's not dry when I say church structure. Some of you are like, oh, brother. Not. But, I mean, it's a really good book. But he maintains in that book that one of the signs of your calling or your gifting is that you believe this is most important. It's the need that you recognize is most obvious. But the, what the enemy wants to do with that is then turn that into, well, this is the whole wall. Or this has to be done first if we're going to do the rest of the wall. Notice in, that, in, in chapter 3, they didn't work on one, they all worked on their own section simultaneously. They didn't wait, well, you know, where the cheap come in, that has to be built first, so let's all go there. But when, when you are called and God is giving you an assignment, that becomes the most important part. So what here at Gateway are you thinking, that has to come first? That's where you're called. But other people aren't called there. And that's okay. And let's not confuse a section of the wall for the whole wall. Let's not confuse one area of Gateway for all of Gateway. My calling can never become my identity, let alone your identity. And I also, we also need to recognize if God has called me to this, he will make a way. It's one of the things he's encouraged me repeatedly. If I have given you this, there is a place for it. So if there isn't a place here, that's okay. I'll miss y'all, but, but we don't have to have that tension of it has to happen here. We can allow him to, to make space for it because he will. But if I take on my calling and give it to you, it's going to become burdensome. And it's going, to, it's going to result in competition or, or conflict. Because if I'm saying, well, if it was really important to Sunday school, and it is. You know, I, I could go through all the lists of why Sunday school is important. And I can say, well, if it's really important, you all be here. And since you're not, it ain't important. And, and so it ain't important. Then, then Gateway's not important to you or whatever. I can go on and on and on. But this is mine. This is mine. And people follow much easier than they're pushed. People, so they'll follow people with passion and zeal and belief much faster than pushing someone who Have you ever seen those mosaics that are made up of individual pictures, but when you zoom out, it's one big picture? I mean, am I the only one that's seen those? And then when you see this huge picture, you can tell it's a mosaic, but when you zoom into it, they're individual pictures. That's what I see we're building. I see Gateway as one picture in there. And when we zoom out, we see the whole kingdom. And we got, we got Gateway here, and Greenwood might be over here, and Trestler over here, and Hickory Ridge, and Harvest, and we got all these other churches. They're, they're building their thing. They're painting their picture together. And together when we zoom out, we see the whole kingdom of God. And that, that's kind of the, the picture that I've always seen. We're building together. We are building together our section of the kingdom. But we do interact. And eventually, if we could pull out, we could see, ow, oh, that's what Gate Green was doing. And that's what, and we can see everybody doing their part. What do our prophetic words tell us we're building? What, what have they said? One is, our name came from one of our prophetic words, gateway. You're going to be a bridge, a gateway. A gateway to what? A gateway to the kingdom, not to my own little things. Not to my own little culture, things that I think. One of the mistakes that, early missionaries made was trying to bring the American culture 
along with Christianity. We have to very carefully tie our culture with our Christianity. So if you're not sure, read over your... I, w- I would encourage everybody, read over those prophetic words. What is he asking us to build? And what does he highlight to you? And if nothing, keep praying over it, believing it, praying into it, and acting upon it when he highlights something. This is something. We're going to be a... We're going to, our pews are going to be filled with hurting. I like that. What's that going to look like? Let me pray about that. And he's, he's stirring that up inside of you. So now what can I do to bring that so that one day we'll see the hurting, on our, hurting and lost on our pews? There's going to be opposition and sometimes going to come from family, friends, and close associates. It would be nice if all of our opposition came from people we didn't really care about. Or I should say people that we don't really know who don't have influence in our lives who we're not close to, that they, they've spoken into our lives before. It would be a whole lot easier, but it doesn't always come that way. It's going to come from people close. Build anyway. Build anyway. Get up and get into, find your section. We each get to do our work. I get to be me. You get to be you. I get to bring what he gives me, and you get to bring what he gives you, and we work together side by side building what becomes gateway. Father, I thank you that you have commissioned us, that you've conferred upon us a kingdom. And not just us, the billions of people around the globe you've conferred upon this kingdom. And we have this small section of the kingdom that we call gateway. And that you have given us, even as a church and individuals, a part in this building project. And would, would you strengthen us as a body to come together despite our different differences and build this part of your kingdom anyway. Amen.